as I've kind of gotten back into doing music and putting out a CD, it got me, because uh, the music that I've recorded is much more energetic and kind of up energy, but, but I also, really the first music that I ever wrote was more like that, more contemplative music. So, um, so I'm seeing if I can bring that in a little bit to, uh, to our practice. Listening to music is, is meditation. Gives us something to focus the mind. And if, we, if the mind wanders, we miss it. So it's a great reminder. Uh, and of course, it's uh, a great um, way of accessing feelings that uh, we can't always access um, through other means, through more conscious or direct means. Um, so it's kind of precious. And, um, and, I, and so I, I just want to say how much I appreciate our conversation before and that, and um, you know, it's the structure of these groups and these classes is that we sit together and sort of at the end of the sitting, I usually say, well, are there any questions? And it's kind of like, huh? You know, which is how we all kind of feel at the end of a sitting. Uh, I mean, sometimes maybe something is up. It's like, oh, right, I'm so glad I get a chance to. But most of the time after the 30 minutes, kind of like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't even remember what I was thinking about. Why, why are you? <laughs> um, so uh, uh, I'm always hopeful that the conversation will kind of develop. And, and, um, and that's what's rich for me about about. Uh, teaching is, is finding people engaged and, and being able to sort of dig into things that are in people's minds rather than I'm going to sit up here and give you a talk about some list. And you've got that big thick book. What are you going to do with Yeah, that? so now I'm going to sit up here and give you a talk. <laughs> so, um, and ju- this is just kind of for fun. I, I, um, Wes Nisker and I started a sitting group over in Berkeley uh, a year or so ago, and and at the beginning of this year, I decided that the thing that's most difficult for me when I'm teaching regularly in one place, as I am there a couple times a month, uh, and just Dharma talks, not necessarily about recovery, not not about recovery, uh, is to come up with a topic each week, and you kind of run out of lists. And so I had just gotten this book, which is the Numerical Discourses of the Buddha. And it starts by having the one, the book of the ones, and the, then it's the book of the twos, and the book of the threes, and they're just each each book, you know, each chapter is a collection of suttas that have like a certain number of topics in each sutta, so that like kind of the lists, and so and there are eleven. I thought oh, I can do the same thing I do here, All right, except I'll just have one month. You know, at the end of the, the end of the year, when I'll just figure out something else to talk about. So I've been going through, and and as you can imagine, I mean, a, a sutta collection like this, it's just enormous, and I don't make any attempt to read all of them or to discourse on all of them. I just kind of go, okay, well, this is the the threes this month, and I'll just start reading through them and find some that I like, and then I'll go in and give a talk on that, and just and and often I kind of read from the suttas a little bit and. Um, so the um, 
this, of course, is the ninth month, and in this class I usually talk about the step of the month. Well, it, it, coincidentally, there's a, I found a sutta the other night when I was preparing for my Wednesday night talk that was about amends. Uh, and I'd never actually seen, I don't recall in any case, seeing one of the suttas that used the word amends in it. Because people often will say, well, is there anything in the suttas about amends? And I'm like, I don't really know. But so now I know. <laughs> there is. And, uh, and it's great. So I'm going to share with you some of this. And, and uh, we just have about a half an hour, so I'm not going to get too crazy. But what I like to do when I present suttas is talk a little bit about uh, how little details of them. These are the closest thing we have to what the Buddha actually said. Uh, these were collected the, uh, after his death by all the monks and all the supposedly enlightened monks who were with him and heard his, him give talks. They, they all got together and recited everything they'd heard the Buddha say. And this is just one of many books. So obviously, I mean, he was teaching for 45 years, so he said a lot of things. And there's a lot of repetition, of course, in his books. But um, th there's something really precious to me about that, that, wow, these people like intentionally said, we're going to recite. And that's what the chanting originally was. All the, all the chanting that comes out of Buddhism was originally just reciting the suttas so they wouldn't forget them. So they recite them together, that way nobody can change them. Uh, and um, so it's a, it's a great historical uh, document. Um, and we get little insights into how people lived and things that were their concerns and interests at that time and the way they thought about things. And then there are some things, there are some things in this sutta that I just don't know what they mean. Um, so the, the, the suttas um, usually start by describing where the talk was given and who was there. So this starts out, on one occasion the Blessed One, the Buddha, was dealt, dwelling at Savati in Jetas Grove, Anattapindikas Park. So this is a famous place that it was a monastery that one of the, the Buddha's followers built for him, Anattapindika. And there's a whole story about how it came to be, and sometime I'll, I'll look that up so I can tell that story for you. But uh, it's pretty interesting because the guy had a, he put like gold coins covered the whole park. He wanted to buy it from this guy Jeta, and he, and he covered the whole thing with gold coins in order to, to buy it from him. That's how, that was the purchase price. <laughs> So then the venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. So Sariputta was the Buddha's right-hand man. Uh, he was with the Buddha. Uh, he was, uh, I don't think he knew the Buddha before his enlightenment, but he was looking for a Buddha for, uh, with, uh, with his best friend. And when they found the Buddha, he was like one of the Buddha's first disciples. And he was considered one of the wisest of the Buddha's disciples. So it says, then the venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side. They always say this. There's certain things about movement, about where they sit and stuff that have meaning, but I've never gotten the 
low down on what it means. Beit Amishdim sat down to one side and said to him, Bonte, which is another honorific, I have completed the Reigns residence at Savati. I wanted to part on a tour of the countryside. So the Reigns residence is during the rainy season in India, all, the, the Buddha told his monks, stay in one place and just practice meditation. Because if you go out, you're going to annoy all the farmers by walking in their rice fields. So, and, and it's just not going to be convenient anyway. So people would stay. So today, we still, the monks, the Theravada monks still have the rains retreat three months each year. And we have a two-month retreat here in the winter, which is meant to kind of mimic that. And there's a three-month retreat at Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast, which uh, preceded even the existence of Spirit Rock. And those are all modeled on the, the rains retreat. What's the name of that? Mogalana. There's another. Yeah. Ananda. Right. Ananda was his assistant. Uh, He wasn't considered one of the. He wasn't enlightened until after the Buddha died. So he's telling the Buddha he wants to go, and as monks would do, and they still do, they just walk, just go from village to village and beg alms and meditate out in the woods. And the Buddha says, you may go, Sariputta, at your own convenience. Which, that's like really not nice talk from the Buddha. He doesn't usually even, he usually says to people, now is the time for you to do as you see fit. Mm-hmm. Which means, really? Okay, if that's what you want to do, fine. <laughs> but, you know, but this is like very generous of him. Then the venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, paid homage to the Blessed One, circumambulated him, keeping the right side toward him, and departed. So again, this has meaning because right side is like the, the transmitting side and the left side is the receptive side or something, you know, on the right hand of God and all that. Okay, this is where the th- sutta gets interesting. Then, not long after the venerable Sariputta had left, a certain bhikkhu, a bhikkhu is the name for a monk. A certain bhikkhu, it doesn't say who. Oh. Said to the Blessed One, Bhante, the Venerable Sariputta struck me and then set out on tour without apologizing. <laughs> I mean, that's just the next line. He, Sariputta exits stage right. In comes the certain bhikkhu, stage left. Sariputta, you know, struck me and then set out on tour without apologizing. I mean, this is like, whew, I'm, Okay. It was really out of the blue. Oh, by the way, the name of this sutta, The Lion's Roar. Then the Blessed One addressed a certain bhikkhu. He's, you know, he's not given names here. You know, this is like, because they don't want to trash this guy. Go, bhikkhu, and in my name, call Sariputta, telling him, the teacher is calling you, friend, Sariputta. Yes, Bhante, that bhikkhu replied. Then he approached the venerable Sariputta and said, the teacher is calling you, friend, Sariputta. Yes, friend, the venerable Sariputta replied. So just calling people friend, that's like has meaning too. So all of this stuff has meaning if you get it. Especially when you just hit the guy. Right? Well, right. But the, but the fact that the Buddha refers to, to Sariputta as friend, he doesn't know, he doesn't, not many people get called friend by the Buddha. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Mahamogalana, who was Sariputta's like best friend, and the Venerable Ananda took a key and wandered from dwelling to dwelling, calling out, Come forth, venerables. They're talking to the other monks. Come forth, venerables. Now the venerable Sariputta will roar his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. 
Like, they're like, whoa, dude, Saraputta is going to be pissed when he finds out what this guy said about him. Come on and see it. You've got to see this show. It's going to be awesome. Lions roar. They, they, this shows up as a title of various suttas. It's kind of like this, you know, the roar of the lions, this great statement of, of some truth whenever it shows up. Then the Venerable Saraputta approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, and sat down to one side. The Blessed One said to him, Saraputta, one of your fellow monks has made a complaint about you, saying, Bhante, the Venerable Saraputta struck me and then set out on tour without apologizing. Okay, now here comes the roar. Bhante, one who has not established mindfulness directed to the body in regard to his own body, might strike a fellow monk and then set out on tour without apologizing. Okay, did you follow that? This is often they put this stuff in negative terms. One who has not established mindfulness directed to the body, mindfulness in the body, first foundation, might strike a fellow monk and then set out on tour without apologizing. Just as they, th okay, then the, this is like really tricky. Try to follow it. Just as they throw pure and impure things on the earth, feces, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet the earth is not repelled, humiliated, or disgusted because of this, so too, Bonte, I dwell with a mind like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without enmity and ill will. Okay, so this is what I hear him saying. First of all, he's saying, I'm mindful, so I couldn't do that. I'm mindful of my body. I couldn't do that. And, you know, I dwell with a mind like the earth, vast, exalted, measureless. I mean, he's like really claiming his, his enlightenment, basically. My mind is you know, vast. I'm not. But it's really interesting that he, and somehow he's saying, well, the earth isn't bothered when people throw crap on it, right? Just as they throw pure and impure things on the earth, it doesn't say who they are. Yeah. Yet the earth is not repelled, humiliated, and disgusted because of this. So what I, what I think the subtext of this is, and maybe it's not really subtext, it's this guy can throw all the crap he wants at me, but it's not going to bother me because I'm, you know, I am mindful of the body. I am, and my mind is vast. So this then becomes a, this is typical of what happens in the suttas, this becomes a, um, a structure, and there's about one, two, three, four, five, six, well, there's nine, I forgot it's the nines. There's nine different paragraphs where, where uh, Saraputta says basically the same thing, but in different contexts. Bhante, one who has not established mindfulness directed to the body in regard to his own body, might strike a fellow monk and then set out on tour without apologizing, just as they wash pure and impure things in water, yet the water is not repelled, so too I dwell with a mind like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without enmity and ill will. Bhante, one who has not established mindfulness, might strike a fellow monk, but just uh, yet um, but just as fire burns. So he, go, he goes earth, air, earth, water, air, fire. He does the four elements. But I dwell with a mind like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless. And I dwell with a mind like air, vast, exalted, and measureless. So, so far, I'm kind of with it because this is a typical thing of Buddhism is to talk about the elements. And, that's, and it's a beautiful metaphor as I dwell with a mind like air, vast, exalted, and 
measureless, so it's, um, nothing bothers me. My mind is vast. But here's one that's just like out of the blue. It says, just as a duster wipes off impure things, yet the duster is not repellent. Like, and he says, I dwell with a mind like a duster. Okay, I have no clue what that is. You know, somebody, this is a translation issue, or somebody's got to explain. I don't know what a duster is. And then, just as an outcast boy or girl clad in rags and holding a vessel enters a village or town with a humble mind, so too I dwell with a mind like an outcast boy, vast, exalted, and measureless. These are really, you know, strange metaphors, but that one seems to be pointing towards humility. Just as a bull with his horns cut, mild, well-tamed, and well-trained, wanders from street to street without hurting anyone, I dwell with the mind like that of a bull with horns cut. This one is going to bother you, but I'm this far deep into it. Just as a man or woman would be repelled, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or dog or a human being were slung around her neck, so too I am repelled, humiliated, and disgusted by this foul body. This is the... You know, the, the teachings on being non-attached to the body and the way the Buddha gets to that is by pointing out that there's a lot of disgusting things about bodies. And, you know, modern Westerners don't, this doesn't really appeal to us because it's kind of, you know, we really don't want to notice all the disgusting things about our bodies, but that's why we take showers every day, so. And finally, nine... I'm sorry if I'm wearing it. We will get to the, the amends. Oh, you don't even want to hear this one. <laughs> All right. Just as a person might carry around a cracked and perforated bowl of liquid fat that oozes and drips, so too I carry around this cracked and perforated body that oozes and drips. I mean, they just tell it like it is. It is, you know, these things do happen on a daily basis, you know, oozing and dripping. Bonte, one who has not established mindfulness directed to the body in regard to his own body, might strike a fellow monk here and, and then set out on tour without apologizing. That's the end of what he's saying. Okay, then that accusing bhikkhu, I mean, this is like... You know, the whole crowd has been watching this, right? The guy's like, oh my God, you can just see him shrinking. Then that accusing bhikkhu rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, prostrated himself with his head at the Blessed One's feet, and said to the Blessed One, Bhante, I have committed a transgression in that I so foolishly, stupidly, and unskillfully slandered the Venerable Sariputta on grounds that are untrue, baseless, and false. I love the redundancy. I mean, they just hammer these things. It's untrue, it's baseless, and it's also false. (laughs) Bhante, may the Blessed One accept my transgression, seen as a transgression, for the sake of future restraint. Surely, Bhikkhu, you have committed a transgression in that you so foolishly, stupidly, unskillfully slandered the Venerable Sariputta on grounds that are untrue, baseless, baseless, and false. But since you see your transgression as a transgression and make amends for it in accordance with the Dhamma, we accept it. For it is growth in the Noble One's discipline that 
okay, this sentence, I always have to read twice. For it is growth in the noble one's discipline that one sees one's transgression as a transgression, makes amends for it in accordance with the Dhamma, and undertakes future restraint. So, this is, I'm just, there's like two more lines, so I'll finish and we'll go back. The Blessed One then addressed the Venerable Sariputta. Sariputta, pardon this hollow man before his head splits into seven pieces right here. I love that. I mean, what kind of talk is that? What? It just comes right out of the blue. Pardon this hollow man before his head splits into seven pieces right there. I will pardon this venerable one, Bhante, if this venerable one says to me, and let the venerable one pardon me, period. And they don't, you know, go on to uh, say that he does, but presumably the guy, yeah, I'm sure he followed through on that one. So, but the critical teaching, besides that you shouldn't let your head split into seven pieces, and that your body oozes and drips, is this idea that since you see your transgression as a transgression and make amends for it, we accept your amends. So, you know, the Buddha says it is better to make a mistake and know you've made a mistake than it is to be conscious of doing it, actually, than it is to unconsciously. If you do something and you don't realize you're doing something wrong, there's no chance for change. There's no chance for, uh, you know, figuring out a different way to do it. So even if it's like, I'm an alcoholic, I really shouldn't have this drink, and you drink, that's better than going, I'm not an alcoholic, and having the drink if you are an alcoholic. So, and, and it makes sense in terms of the possibility of change. If you're in total ignorance about something, if you don't realize, or, or you blame, oh, well, I didn't, you know, I, don't, I didn't say that, um, Saraputta, or, well, maybe, you know, I don't know, he did hit me. You know, I mean, if you, if you just, if you deny it, the truth, there's no opportunity for change. And, and uh, um, you know, conversely, obviously there is, you know, really uh, a great opportunity for forgiveness. The Buddha's not saying, well, you did this, so, you know, say ten Hail Marys and five Our Fathers, you know. And it's like, okay, you, you made amends, you apologized, you know, that's, and you see that you were wrong. So there it is, amends, right in the, right in the suttas. Yeah. Like a quick thought about it. At the very end, he said that he had forgiven if he asked for forgiveness. Yeah. And I think right. that's important. Yeah. Because then, Good. you know, it's not a given. Mm-hmm. You actually have to ask so that someone has a choice. Yes, I yeah. will forgive you or her or whoever. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a note also that says, when the Buddha says, uh, call for Sariputra, tell him to come, there's a note that says that the Buddha could have stepped in and said, you're lying, you know, uh, you know, he could have exonerated, that's the word they use in the sutta, that's what I think of it, he could have exonerated Sariputra himself, just said, you know, 
what are you talking about? I know Sariputta would never do that. But he calls Sariputta back because it gives Sariputta the, he'd rather have Sariputta exonerate himself and say, and of course Sariputta gets to do this show, you know, this great uh, teaching, this lion's roar. Or, yeah. which means the urge w- may come again mm-hmm. to transgress. Alright, good point. Yeah. yeah. What he doesn't say is why the guy did it in the first place. No. There's a lot of holes in these stories. <laughs> these are not like novels where you get, uh, you know, motivation and, uh, you know, backstory. It's just like stuff gets thrown in. And there are there are commentaries on a lot of the suttas that will give backstories and will kind of fill in some of the holes. Um, but I don't know that any, any of this commentary, because obviously this was a particular monk who did this, and they left his name out of the suttas you know, to, to protect the guilty, I guess. But um, yeah, why, why did he do that? Well, I will say that there was plenty of jealousy and backbiting and all that going on in the, in the Sangha. And well, famously, the Buddha had another cousin, Devadatta, who tried to kill him and who tried to overthrow him. Actually, you know, tried to take all his monks away from him and he was always causing trouble. So uh, this may have been someone like that who was jealous of Sariputta and you know, wanted to kind of get attention. And maybe, maybe Sariputta dissed him in some way. You know, kind of way. <laughs> Yeah. There's a prophetic element as well in that this is the night they kept the Buddha, the uh, monk's name anonymous. Oh, uh, yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, it is sort of it, it, quite a coincidence that it falls in the nines and it's the, it's a night step. You know, it's... Uh, it may be purposeful that they don't reveal who he is because... What difference does it really make? What his motivation is? It yeah. kind of gets in the way of, you know, the through line of the lesson. Right. Because you start thinking, like many of us have in the past, well, I can do this because, and you justify it in your own head. Mm-hmm. I was right in doing it. When yeah. the truth is, well, there is no good reason to do it. Yeah. Whatever you may come up with. Yeah. Yeah, and and um, if there's real forgiveness, leaving his name in there kind of gives him a black mark in history, you know, and so he's not really forgiven, you know. It kind of follows him along, and, and so in this way, he doesn't have to kind of bear the, the shame of having made a mistake. He's, he's really forgiven. So I, I, I love dipping into these things. They're, it's not, uh, you know, beach reading. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, and, and, and I, it's helpful, I'm very fortunate that, you know, I have a reason to read them beyond just being interested, because I, I remember when I first got my first collection of suttas, I was like, great, I've always wanted to see what the Buddha really said, and I was like, oh, uh, what? <laughs> what's it, what's this about? Yeah, well, let me read Jack Cornfield, because that was, <laughs> no. And it, it gave me a new respect for all the Dharma teachers who had read suttas and then somehow figured out how to 
translate that, those teachings into, you know, common Western uh, language into English. Um, but uh, I, as I say, you know, I, I'm almost using this class in Berkeley as a, as a way to get myself to read more suttas because, I, I, you know, inevitably something shows up, you know, when, when I go into that, okay, what are the fours, what are the sixes? And, and I'll be kind of like, oh, yeah, this, this, what? And then I found one or two. There was one that I gave a talk on that I never should have given a talk on. It was just because <laughs> there are these things that are just really disgusting. And, and you're like, what? I mean, people, I mean, I might sort of have some understanding. There was one that I just thought it was really crazy. And, but it, I, halfway through it, I realized, oh, this is really disturbing. And I found it, to me, it's kind of funny that there are these crazy things in the suttas. But then I realized, oh, people are coming in here and they don't really have like 20 years of practice under their belt. And sort of, oh, they're encountering Buddhism and somebody's talking about their oozing and dripping. And it's like, <laughs> uh, what time is this class over? You know, it uh, doesn't really sound like Buddhism to me. So. But I, I will say that one of the, uh, one of the, things about reading the suttas is that you do see how filtered our Western view of Buddhism is and how much is filtered out and, and uh, the, the, how the Western teachers emphasize and really just focus on certain things and leave out parts that they feel are going to be unpalatable to a Western audience. Yeah, that's okay. I, I mostly do that myself, but time to time I think it's nice to dip in there. Hope you're not offended. <laughs> well, there's and there's just this stark honesty and stark reality that the Buddha talks about, particularly when he talks about the human body. And you know, to understand that, first of all, when he talks about the body in those ways, his audience is celibate monks and nuns. And, he, and it's not so easy to be celibate. And one of the things that, one, that I guess he believed or that you know, became accepted was that it would help people to remain celibate if they emphasized the unpleasant aspects of the human body. I mean, look at us. <laughs> you can see my head and my hands, you know. The rest of my body is covered up. I don't even like to wear shorts, frankly. My legs aren't. So, I've seen them. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, that was, you know, for a specific purpose. You know, on, the, on the golf course, we, you know, we have other. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you can say the human body is a beautiful thing, and that, that's, you can, that's true. And, you know, there's lots of things you could see in the body if you look closely or not even that closely that aren't attractive and, and you know. Well, Western culture's done that too. Yeah, well, right. I mean, there's the whole, right, they have. But the Western, Western culture has done it more as um, the body is... Uh, impure, in spiritually impure, right? It's like, 
um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sex is dirty kind of thing. And, and the Buddha is more like saying, you know, if you look up somebody's nose, it's kind of disgusting. You know, it's, it's just like pointing out the, the practical reality of that. Um, and, but, but, I, but I think that somewhere there is the impulse for both of those, I do think comes from a positive place in the sense of helping us to be not t so attached to sexual desire. I mean, sexual desire is great, and it can really lead to problems if it's unrestrained. And, and a lot of you know, civilization is about restraining human impulses, one of which is to just you know, grab the closest you know, sexual uh, object, you know, or whatever, and I'm just going to say, you know, opposite, no, whatever, it's not necessarily opposite sex, the, the closest object of your desire, and, and do what you will, you know, and, and a lot of problems come from that. I don't know, it's, it's, we're almost out of time, thank God. <laughs> yes, and next month we'll be doing the 10th step, which is pretty much like the ninth step, just all over again. Oh, Not please. <laughs> no, no, just <laughs> anything. You know, anything. It's okay. Um, this idea of the evolution of consciousness, and when you talk about the, the minor monk, or, you know, I forget all the names, when he gets this opportunity to confront his mistake, I mean, there really is the spiritual growth yeah. in many ways. Absolutely. When you talk about we are unconsciously incompetent, then we become consciously incompetent, and then we become consciously competent, yep. and then at some point in enlightenment we become unconsciously competent. So there's this evolution of enlightenment, much like the minor monk confronting his incompetence, yeah, that's right. and uh, the yeah. Buddha, of course, right. wanting him to experience that spiritual lesson, Absolutely. wanting everyone to witness that spiritual lesson. Yep, exactly. Very well put. Thank you. That's, and that, I like that description of... No, no, no. That's, that's, you know, I mean, that was the point of it. I, I, I just let myself get stuck on that because I got self-conscious about it being in there. So. Um, but no, I, you're exactly right, and I, and I really like the way you characterize that, those kind of stages. That's, I think, very, very insightful and, and very much true. And, uh, and, if you, and if you do, following, I'm, I'm sorry, your name is... I'm Danita. Danita, what Danita said, if you take that now to the ninth and tenth step, the ninth step is that prostration. Yeah. And the tenth step is that mindfulness around, our, around my actions. Mm -hmm. And when I'm wrong, I don't have to, I have to, I should promptly admit it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that next step to me, following what you're saying, into that in, in, in our case, into that self-awareness. Yeah. So. Yep. Very nice. And the, the future restraint that he talks about there, yeah. Good. Well, then we'll just do the same sutta next month. So, <laughs> so let's, just, let's just close with a few moments of reflection. I feel, I feel 
a tremendous gratitude for this group and for the opportunity we have to be together and to support our recovery and our practice, to have these conversations. And I hope that you feel gratitude for this as well. And the spirit of Buddhism and the spirit of recovery is that what we do for ourselves is ultimately of benefit to all beings. Just as the Buddha's enlightenment is still alive for us today, still helping us today. So may our practice and our programs be of benefit to all beings. May all beings find joy and recovery. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you very much. If I don't see you at uh, in Sedona, I'll see you here next month. <laughs>